Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor to have with us the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Congresswoman Karen Bass. Welcome to Make It Plain, Congresswoman. How are you? you? Doing good, thank you. Wonderful. Um, well, first of all, let me ask about home. There's so many. It's like we're living in biblical times with all the crises. Let me ask about home. What's going on with the with the fires? <laughs> well, you know what? California used to have a fire season. Now it seems like it could be any month in the year. And the other thing that is so uh, frightening is that people are dying in these fires now, and that just didn't used to be the case. But, you know, if we're not going to address climate, then we shouldn't be surprised we'll be facing these situations. California has been in the forefront of addressing climate change, but we need our nation to do that as well. It, is there anything on the national level, even in, in the House or Senate, that would make California better equipped to, to tackle what's going on right now? Yes, first and foremost, passing the HEROES Act, because the bill that we passed out of the House more than 100 days ago that has been languishing in the Senate has resources for state and local uh, entities, local governments. So that means firefighting, that means first responders in terms of health care, 
uh, teachers. And so, yes, that is the most important thing that can happen now in terms of supporting us in addressing the fires. Um, uh, and, and obviously that's something that definitely needs to happen. Um, also, we're hearing about the hurricanes as well. Exactly. Uh, you know, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens, whether or not my Republican colleagues will be willing, maybe that will help them pass the HEROES Act, really, because the, in the bill, there's money for state and local governments. And apparently that's one of the biggest uh, points of contention between with the Republicans. They, for whatever reason, do not want to provide resources to their own states. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and people are obviously uh, suffering. Of course, uh, what's front of mind, I think, for everyone, Congresswoman, is what's going on in Wisconsin. First of all, your reaction to that horrendous video. Well, you know, I mean, you, you do ask yourselves, when will it end? When will they just stop? And when will action be taken? So, you know, the other bill that's languishing in the Senate is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But let me just say that uh, everybody saw what happened in Wisconsin. But remember Louisiana. <laughs> remember Trayford uh, Pellerin, I believe is the pronunciation of his last name. He was shot 11 times in his back and he's dead. So we had two shootings within three days of each other. One resulted in massive protests. The other one didn't. We need to remember them both. And we need to say that until we pass legislation that is transformative, these situations are going to continue. Um, and that legislation would be the Senate passing what the House already passed, correct? Yes, yes, because I mean, let me just tell you about two features in that bill, okay? Yeah. One is taking away the officer's ability to have immunity so they, they will kill people with impunity, just like the guy did who, who choked George Floyd to death. He's looking straight at the camera while he's killing someone. And he clearly had no concern about being arrested. So taking away the immunity and then also lowering the standard to prosecute, because right now the standard to prosecute an officer is so high, no one ever gets prosecuted. And so those are just two examples of the law that needs to change. Both of those examples are in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Yeah, uh, and, and that's necessary. What's your reaction to the news of, of late um, that um, we have this gentleman, uh, uh, Mr. Rittenhouse, who's the alleged uh, shooter on the ground in Kenosha, it's also alleged, well, if he's, if he's the shooter, we know there's video of him at, at Trump rallies and, and support for Donald Trump. What do you make of that, Congresswoman Bass? Well, well first of all, uh, to me, he's a vigilante. He's a domestic terrorist. You see the video with him, with his rifle, his high-powered rifle. He's holding up his hands, walking toward the police. Now, can you imagine if that was a black man? Right, of course. Can you imagine if that was a black person at the rally with an AR-15 rifle and the police going, oh, okay, how are, you, how are you doing over there? He would have been shot dead immediately. And so I think that it's the type of vigilantism 
that in my opinion is encouraged and promoted by the president. In fact, if you listen to the chief of police or sheriff, whatever law enforcement leader uh, had a press conference, he basically said, well, if people had abided by the curfew, this would have never happened. And that gentleman with the gun who was trying to resolve something, are you kidding me? He killed two people. That's the way you refer to somebody who was non-law enforcement, who shoots somebody down at a rally. I mean, it's, it's just, it's incredible. I feel like I've been in a time machine and I'm back in the 1940s. It, um, it's, you know, and the police chief was talking about Congresswoman, he even suggested that Rittenhouse came out there to resolve a situation. Right. The police didn't even react to him. Right. And it's almost as if, if I saw the video correctly, there were people, black people specifically, saying to the police, flagging the police down, saying, this guy shot someone. And it was almost as if their voices were just ignored because of the color of their skin. Right. And he was allowed to roam around because he's white. Well, if he was a white man with a gun, there must have been some legitimate reason for him to be there. Right. <laughs> if it had been, a, I mean, and you're talking about, first of all, a child, he's 17 years old. He is not a law enforcement officer, didn't even live in the area walking down the street with a high-powered rifle, with his hands up, marching toward the police, and the police do absolutely nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's really scary. Do you think that Donald Trump wants this, that he is capitalizing on chaos? Without question. He's, his whole campaign is based on law and order, this fiction of cities being completely out of control. Now, you and I know that there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of marches since the murder of George Floyd, and 99% of them have been peaceful. The ones that have gotten out of control, that is unfortunate. I most certainly don't support that. But I also raise questions when I do see the violence as to who's committing the violence, because we know there are examples of where the violence was committed by white supremacist organizations. As a matter of fact, last night at the Republican convention, uh, Vice President Pence made mention of an African-American woman whose brother was murdered at one of the protests in Oakland. And he talked about his murder. Well, it turned out that the person that killed him was a, in a white supremacist organization, the Boogaloo Boys, who deliberately went to the, to the protest, infiltrated the protest to make it look like it was the protesters. I'm sure you saw that video of a young white man in Minneapolis who had himself completely covered so you couldn't see his racial identity. You saw him busting out windows. And then as he was leaving away, he pulled his hood down and you could see that it was a white man. So there are attempts to make this look like, number one, it's the protesters. And then even in Portland, Oregon, where they might be protesters, but the protest, the character has changed and it's predominantly white. So I worry about the black residents of Portland who probably are gonna be blamed for the violence that they're not even participating in. Yeah, yeah. And I think we've seen that in a lot of these situations, there are Asians provocateurs. Right. Who make it look like 
That's it, right. It's us, and it's not us at all. Uh, it, it, do Trump and Pence, I mean, is this the only way to gin up their base to kind of uh, um, cosplay a, a, some type of civil war? Well, I think their strategy is to go after the white vote, a percentage of the white vote to consolidate their core, to try to peel off a small percentage of the black vote and to suppress the rest. So now taking such extreme uh, examples of the post office, aside from making people risk their lives to vote, closing down uh, polling stations so people have to travel further in order to deliver their vote, making it impossible to get a ballot. You have to have an excuse to want to vote safely at home. So they're going through all sorts of voter suppression tactics and at the same time trying to gin up their base by saying that all hell is breaking loose in cities and that they need a law and order campaign. So he has resurrected the ghost of Joe McCarthy by saying that everybody is a, a socialist and George Wallace by running a campaign that's based and rooted in racism. Mm. Congressman Bass, I, I have to ask you this. Um, obviously you were run one of the front runners to be selected as Joe Biden's running mate. I'm sure disappointment isn't the right term, but what, what does it feel like to go through that process um, and then to have your colleague from your great state to be chosen? Well, first of all, I am extremely proud of our vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, who has done an exemplary job as our senator, attorney general, and district attorney in San Francisco, who has been a history maker and a trailblazer every step of the way. So I have been very excited to see her ascend to that level. To me, to go through the process was an incredible honor. To even have been considered was an amazing honor. And I think that it was a, a moment in our history that so many amazing women were up for consideration. And I was really, you know, I was there when uh, Vice President Biden said he was gonna put a woman on the ticket when we were in South Carolina, and that was a very exciting moment. So uh, I am counting, it's now 68 days away, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that we see history in January with the swearing in of Vice President Kamala Harris. And I have to tell you, yesterday we had a meeting of the Congressional Black Caucus, and we did a, we all were on Zoom, of course, since we can't be physically uh, in a room and we did a toast to uh, Kamala and we, it's a source of pride for us because next year is the 50th anniversary of the Congressional Black Caucus and we can say with pride that we have sent two people to the White House. We sent a president and soon to be vice president. That's, that is something. So um, obviously Trump too is and with Russia's help and and creative yes. bots and trolls. Congressman Bass there. Um, targeting black men right and i wonder if you can help with this one of the ways they're targeting black men is by distorting senator harris's record as a prosecutor in california and i mean you've been right there too is yes. there anything you can you can share to generally address you know that not only that tactic but also speak to those who are um victimized or targeted by some of this disinformation? Well, you know, first of all, <laughs> look who's making the charges. Someone who has had, has 
disrespected black people for generations. I mean, second generation. Donald Trump and his father were sued by the federal government for discriminating against black people. What he's had to say about black people in terms of his business. And since he's gotten there, the way he has characterized our communities, I think we cannot allow ourselves to be confused and betrayed by somebody like him. And then you're going to malign <laughs> Kamala Harris for her role as the attorney general. She has a long history of fighting for criminal justice reform. And she wrote a book called Smart on Crime, where she believed that the resources should be put into prevention and there are very specific things that we know to prevent crime and that's where the resources should be spent. But I think that we have to make sure that our community is not confused. Now, granted, they trotted out four or five black people at their convention, but we have to make no mistake. We have to look at the policies that this man has put in place since he has been in office. And from day one, those policies hurt black people, rolling back consent decrees on police departments so that they weren't held accountable you know, getting rid of programs, civil rights programs in each of the federal agencies every single time that hurts black people. So we cannot be confused about this. I forgot to add in the foreign intervention. So the foreign intervention also targets black people by telling black people that their votes don't count, that the Democrats are just as bad, really trying to sow confusion. One thing that black people do though, when we get mad, we get busy. Just and right. so the idea that somebody would try to trick you to me should be a lot energizing to say, how dare you disrespect me like that? I'm going to go out and I know who to vote for. You know, it's interesting. They can't, there's no equivalent to Hillary's emails in this cycle. So right. they're trying to make stuff stick. They can't get Ukraine to stick to Biden. And then how are you going to talk about law and order and then at the same time accuse the ticket with a prosecutor on it of being soft on crime? So it's like they don't really know <laughs> what to wait, 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 wait a minute. We're going to talk about soft on crime? This is a man who everybody he's been associated with has been indicted. Some of them are in prison. You want to talk about soft on crime? He's somebody who doesn't believe the law applies to him. We watch him break the law every day. He will accept the nomination from the White House. That is a violation of the Hatch Act. Down the street from the White House is the Trump Hotel, where he violates the emoluments clause almost on a daily basis. So he can't hardly talk about law and order. And then let me just tell you something. If he cared an ounce about us, then give us the COVID data because 178,000 dead Americans, you and I know there is a large percentage of those that look like you and they do not want the data told. Why don't we know the breakdown as to who those 178,000 people are? Now the White House wants the data. The White House is also trying to capture the census data in a way that is going to reduce the numbers of people that are counted. Why are they doing that? Because they're talking about consolidating power for the next 10 years. And if they grab the census data and undercount intentionally our communities, 
then we will lose representation. Do we have any recourse uh, against what they're doing with the Postal Service? I know they're probably going to be more hearings. Well, there were hearings this week. There'll probably be more. Do we have any recourse to, to try to get that back on track? Well, I think that we were able to stop the bleeding, but we haven't repaired the wounds. So in other words, we got them to stop removing the sorting machines, to stop removing the blue boxes. But the blue boxes and the sorting machines that they already removed, we have not been able to get them to put them back. As a matter of fact, they're now saying that they basically destroyed them. I mean, who does this? If you look at, if you look at what's going on in this country from a global perspective, we look ridiculous. I mean, you know a lot of what I do is focus on Africa. Yes. And I'm supposed to go over and tell African countries, well, you know, don't hire your family, don't cheat in an election, don't try to change the election date. We don't have a leg to stand on internationally. Right, right. Um, lastly, just before we came on, you and I were chatting a bit about HR 40. Um, in fact, I'm in, in a few minutes when we leave, I'll be on the, the weekly um, strategy session with judiciary staff. I think we're over about 150 co-sponsors more and more coming on. It, it looks like that legislation is is building up some steam and, and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee is hoping we may be able to even bring it to a vote in the House before the end of the year. Do you think our chances are pretty good? I do. I do think our chances are good because we're at a moment in our country, which, you know, I mean, I hate that it re is the result of the deaths of people um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, the people that have been killed since George Floyd. Um, but I think we, with all of the protests, and this is the first time I've seen this that I can recall, people are now saying systemic racism. In the past, people wouldn't even connect the shooting of black people with racism at all. And so now that we're beginning to examine our history, it is the moment to say, 256 years of enslavement. And we don't want to talk about the consequences of that. We don't want to look at how that impacted a population. And then there was the 100 years after enslavement of US apartheid. The South Africans came over here and studied Jim Crow before they instituted apartheid in South Africa. And so we need to look at the history of discrimination. And to me, to look at systemic racism, we need to look at each of our institutions and say what in these institutions are barriers to people of color. Tomorrow, anniversary of the March on Washington. Um, we'll all be in Washington, D.C. I, I don't, I, I think I heard you might make it back. I don't know if you actually make it uh, to be with us at the Lincoln Memorial, but I know you, you're a supporter. Uh, of course. We want to deal, you know, promote the George Floyd Policing Act. Uh, let me commend you. You mentioned Africa, your work on Africa, your, your work on behalf of Africa. Um, we appreciate that continuing. And let me just also say, I, I complimented you greatly um, when Chris Dodd said what he said about Kamala Harris. And I thought it was very outstanding the way you defended your colleague, even though you were also uh, in the running for the same job. Um, and I just wanted to commend you for that because that said a lot about your stature. And I say that to a lot of people. That's why Karen Bass is in the running and why she's important um, to us all. So we can't, we can't let 
people pit That's right. us against each other. And so when the media attempted to do that, uh, well, we said no. Kamala and I talked about it. We were not going there. It's not unusual for people to go for the same position. There's no reason for it to be, for it to result in attacks on each other. We can't let them divide us, for sure. Congresswoman Bass, such a pleasure to speak with you, and we thank you for joining us, and thank you for all your hard work on behalf of us all. Absolutely. Thank you for your work. All right. Thank you, ma'am. Take care now. All right. Bye-bye. As many of you know, ladies and gentlemen, I am in utter solidarity with my guest today and the work she does and her organization, which, by the way, is celebrating its 15th anniversary. And that's a pretty big deal. They've been doing a lot of great work. I was speaking to some young people earlier, you know, reminding them it's interesting when we look at Black Lives Matter and all of these movements around what is going on today. Um, to a lot of young people, this seems new, but some of us have been dealing with this for generations, and this is an organization that's been dealing with this for at least the past 15 years. It's a testament to this organization's greatness, but it's also a testament to the fact that 15 years on, the work is still not done, and it must continue. We are so honored to be joined by one who is about to become a mother for the second time, our dear friend from the Gathering for Justice, Executive Director, Carmen Perez. Carmen, how are you? I am good. It's so good to be on Zoom with you, talking to you, seeing your face. I know, you know, otherwise we'd be marching together, we'd be protesting together, but because of circumstances, um, we have to see each other this way. But I'm good, feel blessed, um, certainly concerned about where we are politically and, you know, also where we are in the justice movement. Um, but feeling good, you know, about to give birth in a couple of weeks. So as, you know, they say, I'm trying to wind down, but certainly, you know, this work and this movement keeps me engaged and keeps pulling in my heart. That makes me want to continue to fight, even though I have to take some time for myself. You know, speaking of which, Carmen, you have been continuing to work very, very hard um, with this, with the social justice stuff, the police demic and the pandemic. Um, at this stage of your organizing career, are you feeling overwhelmed? And you're pregnant. Has this been overwhelming for you? I mean, you if anybody's got a multitask, you do. With it is. Yeah, it is overwhelming. I think um, we've been doing this work for a long time. You know, you mentioned 15 years. Mr. Belafonte first started the Gathering for Justice, uh, brought together the elders of the civil rights movement after he had witnessed a five-year-old girl by the name of Jaisha Scott being handcuffed. And her charge was that she was unruly in the classroom. And so we see the fact that police officers get called in to do what counselors actually should be doing, but then to also see the last shooting that happened in Wisconsin um, where the young man you know, was shot in the back. It's overwhelming, one, because we are 
under COVID. We are under this state of, you know, having to stay home and, uh, but there's still killings happening, right? So there's a lot of trauma that people are experiencing. And then you want to get up and you want to fly somewhere. You want to organize. I think that's my nature is just to go to wherever injustice is and organize something. And so I feel overwhelmed because I'm at this moment not able to travel, but I do have a dynamic team that I could deploy, you know, that is out. You know, there are folks in Kentucky that are part of Justice League supporting what's happening there with Until Freedom and our sisters, Linda and Tamika Mallory and our brothers, Angelo and my son. Um, But for me, as somebody who is a doer, who's been doing this work for 25 years and feel a connection to being, you know, on the front lines, um, it's challenging, but it's an opportunity as well to pass the baton and to give others the opportunity to lead and to train up young people um, to, you know, carry on in the spirit of our elders, the many people that you are familiar with and that I'm familiar with, like the Harry Belafontes and the Representative John Lewis's and the Bernard Lafayette's, Diane Nash's and, you know, Alla Baker's. Um, so I find this, you know, my husband and I always talk about opportunity and chaos, right? So what is this opportunity? in all this chaos that's happening. Um, but I will say my heart is always heavy. We organize in crisis every single day and we get to meet the families that are directly impacted by state or police violence. And so, you know, you have to kind of take a deep breath and hold whatever your emotions are, especially as a pregnant woman. I find myself in tears a little bit more than I've ever have in my whole life. Um, which is good because I always was very stoic in my work, you know, going into prisons, not personalizing, making it about myself or working with families. You have to have a level of just uh, strength in order to be there for, for other folks. But, you know, I shed a tear now. I'm, I'll be moderating panels and hearing from family members. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard because I think, like you said, everything's happening all at once and it's so visible and then it continues to happen, right? So George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, Sean Monterosa, Eric Salgado, um, Andres Gallardo, all the three young men that were killed at the hands of police, you know, different types of systems of police, whether it was CHP or police officers or, or, or even sheriffs, it's hard um, and you wanna be there for the families and, and work with them and then I have a two-year-old or almost two-year-old who's also pulling on my shoulder, you know, needing me to be a mommy. So it's it's been quite interesting, but I'm happy to be celebrating our 15th anniversary. It's been a long 15 years, and Mr. Belafonte talks about the long-distance runner, and so we're here for the long distance, but I also know that there's a time in which, you know, I got to you know, do my run and then allow somebody else to take the next couple of years too. So we're, we're using this as an opportunity to train up. How did, well, you mentioned Eric Belafonte and what happened with, with the little girl that was handcuffed. How did you get involved with Mr. Belafonte and the gathering? Ooh, 15 years ago, I used to be a young person in the space. Um, I'm now an in-betweener, uh, but I was a mentee of Nane Alejandres. I was working inside prisons and offering services to 
the men, the cultural committees inside um, DVI or traveling around the world with Mr. Nane. And um, when he, Mr. Belafonte brought together the elders, what he realized was that a lot of the elders, um, you know, had their own positions. They had their own organizations. And what he had asked of the elders uh, was to bring their mentees so that we could carry on the work. And so I was brought to the second convening, which was in Epps, Alabama. Mr. Belafonte chose a uh, cooperative, um, a big old farm where we didn't have reception, where you couldn't drive, you know, we about like 25 years old, we couldn't drive to the liquor store, you know? <laughs> and so we had to be in space with one another, with our elders, we had to have conversations. Um, and we learned so much. Um, at that time about how our struggle, particularly Chicano, Latinos, Latinx people, struggle was really um, interconnected with the Black struggle of this country. And so built some really strong friendships and relationships that have carried on people like Dewana Thompson, people like CJ, J uh, Carrie Jenkins out of Atlanta. And so I was brought in as a youth organizer. Um, I was part of the executive committee to help build what is now called the Gathering for Justice. Initially, we would consistently ask Mr. Belafonte, what is the agenda? He would convene us together. We were meeting, you know, the, the African-American Black community with the Chicano Latino community, with the indigenous, the Onondaga nation, with the poor white folks. And we we're like, what is the agenda? And he would say to us, the agenda is to find the agenda. And so, you know, after 15 years, I think we have found our agenda. Our agenda is to eliminate the racial inequalities um, that are perpetuated in the criminal justice system. Our agenda is to fight against state and police violence. Our agenda is to stop child incarceration. But it took you know, quite some time as we were building relationships. And what we learned is that we actually had more in common than we did differences. Um, and in 2007, after we had traveled across the country meeting different people, um, what we were able to do is convene uh, under the Gathering for Justice. Mr. Belafonte talked about every organization keeping their autonomy but connected to a larger mission and vision. We convened in Oakland in 2007 with Mayor Dallums who welcomed us in a lot of Bay Area organizations and we had a national convention where we adopted the ideology of Dr. King which was King in Nonviolence. Um, and so we organized in the spirit with the foundation of the past, but really honing in on the energy of the young people. And so been really excited to be part of this journey. I initially, like I said, I was young. I was brought in as an executive committee member, then hired to be the national organizing director. And now I'm the CEO and president. And so hopefully in a couple of years, one of our young people who has come in through our programs will take, you know, the will 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 take the rings and and lead this organization as well. Well, let's let's talk about some of the current organizing. And you mentioned three names. The these things, these incidents of police violence, happen every day, uh, and many of them aren't reported on. And in many cases, there aren't videos. So when we see the ones like the most recent one, obviously of Jacob. Blake, which is as appalling as any others. We have a video, 
is also interesting. I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, obviously, the intent was to kill, but they didn't. Right. Which, which is going to obviously result in some ramifications we've not seen recently. An actual survivor of this type of attack who will be able to articulate and share his own witness and testimony about what was going on. Normally, we don't have that. The person is dead. So this, this is, is, is a whole nother thing. But you mentioned some others. And, and what, I, what I really like to do, Carmen, um, is, is kind of walk through some of these other cases and the ones you've been looking at um, in California. And, 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 and obviously, these are some of the ones that haven't gotten as much national attention, but they need to. So if we could go through um, a little of a, a little of those, if you know, a few of those, if you don't mind. Of course, of course. So, you know, in the month of, I would say from May to June, it seemed like it was open season on Latinos here in the state of California. Right. We had Eric Salgado, who was driving um, with his pregnant girlfriend, who was shot down by the CHP. Um, young Latino man. His girlfriend ended up miscarrying. I mean, they're still seeking not only justice for Eric Salgado, but they're also seeking justice for his girlfriend. I believe her name is Brianna as well. Then on June 2nd, June 1st, a young man by the name of Sean Monterosa was out actually protesting on behalf of Black Lives Matter. The last text that he sent his sisters, Michelle and Ashley, were to sign the petition for George Floyd. And he was gunned down by Vallejo P Police Department um, in front of a Walgreens. And they shot through an actual, um, the window, the, you know, the front window of a, of a undercover police car. And the police, the, I believe the commissioner, the police commissioner has actually destroyed that evidence. There's a lot of things that are happening. They're putting a gag order on the family not to speak. Um, but there's a lot of injustice that's happening. And immediately after that, Andres Gallardo, who was killed um, in Southern California, he was a security guard. He was killed by the sheriffs. And in that case, the sheriffs have actually, um, uh, I believe, put a moratorium. They, they have blocked uh, the ability for the family to see the, um, the coroner's report, right? So there's... There's so much that happens every day. And, and Jacob Blake, you know, you talk about a survivor. There are two other survivors that Justice League works with. We have um, Jacob Servin, who was a survivor of a beating out of Stockton uh, Police Department. He's a young man that has been wanting the release of the names of the officers who have actually beat him. Um, he also wants them prosecuted for attempted murder. They left him to die, essentially. Um, and then you have Akbar Rogers out of Long Island, uh, who, you know, one of our, our Justice League members, Nia, works closely with. He himself was charged for his own assault by police. Fortunately, the community came around and rallied around him and um, they were able to drop those charges. But he's another young man that has lived to tell his story. Right. Um, and so what we're seeing every single day is this trauma. Um, and you're right, a lot of these cases are not getting national attention. I think what was very difficult about Jacob Blake is the fact that he had just broken up a fight, right? And he had his children in the car and he was walking away. He was de-escalating. He was 
trying to get out of the situation and a police officer with their ego grabbed him and started shooting him point blank. And so what oftentimes I think what people don't should understand is the fact that police officers are trained to kill. They are trained in their public safety course to kill other people because they want to go home to their families. They want to be able to write the police report. And so we need all hands on deck. Um, I know that we have seen because of the work that has happened with Black Lives Matter and the, the investment in the last seven years, six years of Black Lives Matter, we have now seen the ability for us to organize rapidly. And we also at the Gathering for Justice, we've been doing this work before the hashtag, but a hashtag allows you to connect to other people, right? A hashtag also allows you to connect to other organizers and to a cause and really identify the fact that at this moment, we need to, to save Black Lives Matter because what we are seeing especially in with state violence when it comes to um, police violence is we're seeing that black lives actually don't matter. Um, it's taken years for one officer to actually be fired in the NYPD um, who was responsible for the death of Eric Garner. You and I have marched for, I don't know how many years we've been in support of Gwen Carr and Eric Garner's family and still we haven't seen justice for the family because not all of the officers that were there have been held responsible. Not only did he need to be fired, he also needs to be held accountable, right? Uh, but that was, again, the community organizing, the family organizing. And so that's what it really looks like when you have people who are able to support these families that are not necessarily people who wanted to be part of this club. You know, I just hosted... Um, and moderated for families of police violence uh, through the Human Rights Network and Uncle Ron, the, the Jordan Davis uh, Foundation. And it was so beautiful because we were talking about joy. For the first time, you were able to hear the stories of loved ones who have been killed at the hands of police by their family members. And there was uh, an expression of joy sharing the beautiful stories of who they were, not who the media painted them to be. So these stories need to be told. Sean Monterosa, there's um, his information. There's petitions that need to be signed. There's also Andres Guayardo and Eric Salgado. And we don't often hear about Latinos because Latinos are often misidentified. The Vallejo Police Department misidentified Sean Monterosa and said he was African-American. And so there's this misidentification when it comes to Latinos. There's also a fear, right, of families speaking out because of potential undocumented status or just not knowing the system, having a language barrier. Um, but, you know, for us, we're going to continue to fight, whether it's for Sean Monterosa or if it's continuing on the path to fight for Eric Gardner, whose family still needs justice, right? Um, we will always be there showing up, and especially with Jacob Blake and all the other uh, individuals that were killed in Wisconsin. You know, there's an officer in Wauwatosa who has three bodies on him. Um, and so we just need to make sure that we continue to shed light on these issues. And part of the work that we do at the gathering is doing that. Um, so let me ask you this. When we say Black Lives Matter, um, and I appreciate what you shared about the realities for our Latinx community, but when we say Black Lives Matter, um, 
do the brown lives that also don't matter? Do, do Does the Latino community feel left out in that at all? I was talking to Michelle and Ashley Monterosa, the young women who are uh, sisters to Sean, and they're also fighting for Black Lives Matter. I think, you know, there are a lot of us that have shown up for Black Lives, um, as Linda says, you know, and, and which I embody as well as once Black people are free, our people will be free. I've traveled around the world to Mexico, to Cuba, to Venezuela, to El Salvador, and I've met with Afro Latinos, right, who have not received justice or the resources uh, versus their family community members. I've also been to Germany with Afro uh, Germans who have also been um, discriminated against by Nazis, right? And so we see what happens all over the world. And so we, uh, we one, as Latinx people, I think we have to um, figure out the way in which we show up in solidarity, right? I'm not going to go to a Black Lives Matter protest and say, you know, Latinos lives matter. That's just, that's not solidarity. Solidarity is showing up in service of, and, and um, but also we have to deal with the anti-Blackness and the whitewashing that has taken over our communities as a Latinx community, right? Um, again, I shared with you going to Venezuela and meeting with Afro-Venezuelans and uh, Afro-Cubanos and all these different Latinos, there's this whole diaspora of people that we don't necessarily talk about that I think we need to acknowledge. And I think that any um, community who is still learning about the injustices uh, that's happening in our community are trying to figure out how do we fit into this bigger puzzle. If you look at the state of California, Latinos make the majority, the Latinx community makes up the majority of people that are incarcerated. But yet we as Latinos are really not um, invested in criminal justice reform. Uh, there's not many of us that have been uh, working to make sure that Latinos are not in the system. So we, again, I think have a lot of, um, there's a lot of complexities in our community. Um, however, I will say that there are a lot of Latinx people that are showing up for Black Lives Matter. They want, they're hungry. There are a lot of influencers that have reached out to me saying, how can I show up? How can I use my platform for Black Lives Matter? And especially because they do see their liberation bound uh, with Black people. And then you also have those folks, like in any group, Mark, let's just be quite honest, like not all skin folk are kin folk, right? right? But there are some of the folks that are saying, what about us? What about Latin lives? Latino lives matter too. But we have to be affirmative when we say Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, tell us too about another case um, that I don't think enough people know about. Uh, our sister Tiana, I believe, and, and what is the status of her case? She organized a peaceful protest and they're trying to lock her up, what, 15 years? They are. I think what's happening, we saw this with um, the Kentucky group too, is that now folks are being charged with felonies. Um, and so what we've seen since the beginning of our protesting years in 2014 is the fact that in, in New York City, they created a special unit to deal with protesters and terrorists, right? Um, so that's what you're seeing right now is you're seeing the militarization of policing coming into our cities. 
to deal with protesters, peaceful protesters, and also these charges that are outrageous for peaceful protesters to be intimidated and not go out to the streets. That's all this is. And you're right. There's a whole coalition that is in support of Tiana. There are a lot of people that are supporting, um, but because we all see ourselves in her, we all know that we are the ones that are organizing, whether it's a peaceful protest, we try to ground and train our protesters. We use marshals. We do everything. We also create the demand so that people are clear what they're marching and protesting for. But as you're doing all that in order to make sure that people are protesting or marching with a purpose, the police are also coming in and antagonizing. And so sometimes it's really hard to hold your cool. And we've seen this in the civil rights movement with the counter protests, right? With all the counter sit-ins and our elders. Um, and that's why we try to ground our team in the six principles of nonviolence, attack forces of evil, not people doing evil, because it's easy to pop off at a police officer after they like hitting you with a baton. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I think that more people need to come out in support of her, especially because that could happen to any one of us. Yeah, I have seen that. It's a greater application of the felony charge. Um, and and that's... Um, and they've done that in, Fer in Ferguson too, Mark. Remember they did that to some of uh, the people that we knew that were out there. They were charged with about, I don't know how many counts of felonies and they were in car they were in jail for a long time. And so these scare tactics to not allow protesters to go out and fight for black lives. Um, one is just outrageous that they're doing this, but two, the fact that they're trying to do everything for us to not show up on, on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the battle is all about. 15 years, folks, the gathering for justice has been doing its work. And of course, uh, as I've always said, uh, the gathering, as Carmen has alluded to, um, is probably doing some of the best work of any organization. And again, organization is important. Doing some of the best work of any organization, bringing along a younger generation, bringing them up, uh, teaching them, giving them experience. And of course, um, when Mr. Belafonte gathered you all, you did have the likes of, of John Lewis uh, with you. And I know you got a chance uh, to know him uh, yourself. Is there anything most memorable to you about any of your experiences with John Lewis, Carmen? One of the things that I love about the elders is the fact that they are so personable. They make you feel like you are number one in the room. And he talked a lot about his work. And as I was trying to you know, just thank him for the work that he had been doing. He was so adamant about making sure that I felt appreciated for the work that I was doing. Um, I know he spoke after our 250 mile march. That's when we had a march from New York City to DC in 2015. And he spoke on the last day. And although Tamika, myself, and Linda, you know, we couldn't really stand that long, he was speaking so passionately that we just felt like, this was the moment. This is why we actually marched, not only to shed light on those that were killed by police, but also because our elders march, right? A lot of folks in the past, Mark, have said, why still march, right? That's a tab. We don't march. We're, we're not. And it's because it actually creates a different level of awareness. It was a spiritual journey for us. But to be on that stage with Representative Jonathan Lewis was just powerful. 
And then I got to see him again at the uh, National Black Caucus in Washington, D.C., where he actually honored me. And he was I was so grateful to speak to him and and share with him, you know, some words of Mr. Belafonte. And, you know, these elders, they they're funny because they got history and they got these jokes, you know, that <laughs> that like right. uh, they're just they they're just some funny people. But he made me feel like I was the only person in the room. He really was grateful for the work that we were continuing in his spirit and the fact that, you know, he passed this year, um, I think brought truly a lot of sadness to a lot of us. Um, but his film was an inspiration, Good Trouble. And I think all of us are certain to continue to get into good trouble um, in the years to come, especially because we feel connected to his work and his legacy and how he never, one thing I love about him and even C.T. Vivian, who was part of the original Gathering for Justice, I remember interacting with all these giants, um, C.T. Vivian. There was also, um, I had mentioned Dr. Bernard Lafayette, um, who was the person who wrote King and Nonviolence, who had been a confidant also to Dr. King. Um, there was just so many. I got the opportunity to go to the 50th anniversary of SNCC um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I got to sit at the feet of all these elders. And I just got to tell you, they're, they're a pleasure to be around. Um, and they have like these jokes that you have to like really be mindful that you're, you know, you, you, you just like sit back and let everybody else laugh because you don't know if it's okay to laugh about what they're saying. <laughs> but you know, Mr. B does that too. Mr. B, you know, this, this old humor, you know, it's like, uh, decades and decades of, of, um, just them laughing together and organizing together. But, um, I will say, I think for me, I lost my father at the age of 94, uh, almost two years ago. And, um, and I think that was my first blow to like recognizing that I was going to lose the people that I love the most. And those have all been some of the elders in my life that have done some really amazing work. And so I think my father prepared me for that, that, um, that loss. Um, and just reminded me like, just stay in good company with these people and, and acknowledge their legacy and keep it forward. And that's really what I think is my responsibility, you know, as a bridge keeper between the youth and the elders is to make sure that the legacy of the Harry Belafonte's, the Dr. King's, the representative John Lewis's, um, all of these folks that contributed to the civil rights movement and not just the civil rights, but also the American Indian movement, right. the Chicano movement, the United Farm Worker movement, um, because all these movements were so important. Um, and we have to continue to teach the tactics um, because it's really, easy to get lost in the the urgency of protest or the urgency of marching but what are the long-term strategies to keep us in this fight for a long time and so i'm really grateful for what they've paved but certainly and moments i will share i i have sadness in how you know they're not um some of them are not with us right now mm -hmm. and when we we think about our lives to Carmen, of course, you're you're younger than me, but I'm still in that in between age too, between mm -hmm. the elders and the younger. Uh, and 
you really do find yourself as a bridge. And as the elders move on, you know, adulthood and responsibility is not always chronological. Right. So, so as they move on, it, it thrusts our generation more, wait a minute, we, we, this is us. We got to step up. We got to be adults. <laughs> you know, we can't play no more. I, we have to become grown women and men, you know, in more ways than we ever thought we could be or were. You really mm -hmm. realize where you are in the world and the responsibility that you have. And, and, and obviously you are blessed and you've passed that blessing on uh, to others having sat at the feet of these great giants and, and learned so much and been able to touch the, uh, the hems of their garments. And so um, we so appreciate you. Folks, the Gathering for Justice, again, people talk about how they can be supportive. There's so many ways to be supportive. Um, we ask you also to make donations. None of these organizations can function for free. All of them have to raise money. Uh, we invite you to go to the Gathering for Justice. Carmen, give everybody the website, if you would. Of course, it's gatheringforjustice.org. Uh, you could follow us at Gather Number Four Justice on Twitter and Instagram, and NY Justice League. Yes, like the superhero group, we come together like Voltron. I wanted to just kind of um, go back to what you were talking about. Another uh, memory that I have is when Mr. Belafonte and Julian Bond were at SNCC at the anniversary, and they're like playing with each other. Um, like throwing things at one another. And then the moment in which I met Dick Gregory when I was being interviewed by um, uh, Democracy Now! And they were asking me, it was a, a, it was a march, the silent march that happened on Father's Day many years ago in New York City. I was being interviewed. Dick Gregory pulls up. My eyes get big, like, oh, that's Dick Gregory. And so as she's interviewing me, I'm kind of like, you need to interview him. And he's like, no, he, he was like, no, no, no. Like you finish your interview. And just the fact, like you read about these giants and then you're finally in space with them and you try not to like have your jaw drop and your eyes get wide, but you're so grateful for all the work that they do that you just happen to like glance over and they're so nonchalant about who they are. And I'm just, Again, very proud of the folks that I've gotten to experience, but I'm also really proud of the young people that we've been able to cultivate in the gathering and in Justice League as well, because if it wasn't for the investment that Harry Belafonte and all these elders made in me, um, you know, I don't, I actually wouldn't know where I would be, right? And that allows me to continue uh, this legacy of the Dick Gregory's, of the Julian Bonds, of the of the laughter that they had with one another um, and the humility, right? And they're also radical voice that is missing sometimes, um, unless I'm talking to you or to Linda or you know some of our inner circle, we don't get to hear that uh, from others, but really grateful for you, Mark, um, and just wanted to share those stories because oh, I'm really I, proud. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm grateful to you too. I, I um, the last, few times I got to see Mr. Belafonte and Dick in the same space. You talk about those jokes. Mr. Belafonte was, is always worried when Dick is around telling jokes because Dick likes to tell dirty jokes. <laughs> Mr. Belafonte would say, keep it clean, Dick, please keep it clean. We were all at a banquet, banquet once 
and Dick kept it clean. And then after Mr. Belafonte got up behind him and said, I want to thank my friend Dick Gregory for keeping it clean uh, <laughs> tonight. But, uh, but no, and I, I appreciate all of you folks uh, being around Carmen and some of the young people she's been around has probably added some years of longevity to my life. When you're around young people, it tends to, you know, prolong your, your time here. So I'm grateful for that too. Folks, we invite you to go to gatheringforjustice.org on their 15th anniversary, folks. This is the 15th anniversary. And we congratulate uh, Carmen and her beautiful family. And she is expecting uh, another baby on the way in the next few weeks, I guess, few days almost, really. Uh, so we wish you may. Are you going to take a break? Are you going to take some? T I, I will. I'm taking a break. I, I have to say we are uh, training up our team. We've got a lot of young people and some dynamic people that are part of the Gathering for Justice. And you're right, freedom ain't free. So if folks can actually support us, they could donate on our website. Um, but really, I'm, I'm going to be able to take time off for the first time since I was nine years old. Um, and so I don't really know what I'm going to do with myself. Um, obviously, I have a new baby. But you know me, I'll, I'll want to get involved. I want to call in to, to conference calls and see what's going on. So um, I'm trying to work on boundaries right now. But yeah. I know the feel. Carmen and Perez, folks, gatheringforjustice.org. Thank you, Carmen, and happy 15th anniversary. Thank you. All right, wonderful. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.